welcome to the Medical Menemist Podcast, your source for memory techniques and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. This is part seven, our final part of this recap mini-series. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. It's been very informative. If you haven't listened to the other episodes first, go back and do that right now. They all lead up to this final episode. All right, I'm not going to waste a lot of your time. Let's get into today's show. We left off with mentorship in the last episode, but some students can't find a free or affordable expert mentor. This is when some peer friends and peer mentorship might be a good option. If you had a good teacher or a very experienced, say, graduate student or other individual who had gone through this process, I bet you that they would be able to provide some very useful guidance if you would be able to get them to be willing to kind of monitor you. Selecting a study buddy that's right for your goals is important. Don't just stick with your friends and make sure that they have the same goals and are willing to stick with you. This goes for memory techniques and for study techniques, study buddies. You know, I think it's, it's pretty common to have a study group or a study buddy or a training buddy. I think it's, it's really essential to find a like-minded person who not only wants to study and do well, especially at you know, the level you want to do well. If you want to be top of class, you need someone else who wants to be top of class. If you just want to make sure you pass that really hard class that you know you're going to struggle with, find someone else similar-minded. But also, if possible, find someone else who is either interested in memory improvement and making this whole process easier and faster, or turn them on to it so that you have at least one other person, if not more people, that will hold you accountable to your you know, 15 minutes of memory training three days a week or, you know, two hours on Saturday or whatever you have time for, or who knows these techniques and is willing to work at them with you. So, you know, when they say, well, you're having trouble with that, what, what memory palace are you using? You're like, oh yeah, I didn't even, I forgot to use a memory palace and the memory technique for this one. Of course, that's what I should be using. You've got someone there to remind you. Because really this is about, you know, for med students or anybody in, in higher learning, it's about either doing it faster because there's so much to learn, you don't have enough time, or you already are a good studier, you already remember well, but there's some things that just won't stick. But we all know that struggling with the quantity of material we cover and the time constraints that learners have to learn this material can negatively influence our motivation. In the last episode, Dr. Daniel Sadawi Kanafka and Jared Cooney Horvath both stated that awareness of our mistakes can make us feel pretty lousy. So can motivation help us overcome this? Keeping your motivations pure. So people who are driven by intrinsic motivation, so the desire to learn something because it's fun or meaningful to them, those learning outcomes tend to be of higher quality than people who are learning for extrinsic reasons, things like tests. Uh, In particular, People who learn for tests tend to do just as good when it comes to fact-based learning, but uh, their outcomes are inferior when it comes to things like conceptual understanding, transfer, as compared with those who are learning, I'll call it for the love of learning. You can find these full episodes at freemeded.org slash podcasts. But actually, the neurochemical changes that occur when we make mistakes have been stated by a few guests now. Here's Anthony Mativier discussing his interview with Dr. Barbara Oakley on the subject 
and his personal feelings about overcoming these emotional states. Speaking of Barbara Oakley, she talks in a book of hers called Mind Shift about the insular cortex and how that it creates a kind of pain response in the brain whenever people face a situation of needing to make an effort and that, that that's quite natural. And I have no disagreement that, that that may be so. Other than that, we have an entire history of the human species bucking up and getting the work done anyway. So I don't you know, see any excuses. And if I have a flaw, it's that I don't even accept excuses from myself and certainly not from any of my students. And I will often write people when they have excuses, you know, you've just got to dive in, create the habit, let the brain chemicals do their work like dopamine and myelin sheaths and all this great neurochemical stuff that will happen if you're just consistent and persist. I don't care what your IQ is. I don't care what your story is. I don't care about any of that stuff. Do the work. The results will follow. And don't listen to the story that your brain is telling you that it's too hard. When we're talking about motivation and learning, we're really talking about the motivation to study to the quality that is going to lead to long-term memory, to long-term retention, or as Jake Gilson from the Learning Geeks podcast calls it, durable learning. And this can be different than our short-term learning goals. How can durable learning relate to motivation? And how does that affect our cognitive energies that we need to expend to learn this material properly? Durable learning is not a, a coin term that you know we came up with. It's actually been out there for a while. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just learning that lasts and learning that sticks. That was our goal. So, so anybody, this actually applies to anybody. So you as a, a student or, you know, especially in the medical space, right? It doesn't matter. It's how can you yourselves be a better learner? So there's various principles that at least we talk about, but I, I mean, I kind of wanted to just share some things of which, you know, within your role and your specific, where you're at in your education space or educational level right now is what you can do, right? So for me personally, when I think of durable learning, and I think of me as trying to be a durable learning learner myself or a smart learner. That's what I like to think of it. Someone that knows how to learn, but like wants to get better at it. You know, the first thing I do or recommend is really to just take a step back and think of what you're really, really trying to learn. And I think this is a critical is that you're focusing on your learning goals. So in the context of higher education, you know, this, this applies too. So, and it requires more effort on yourself. And I think that's the difference mainly because you may be required to learn a particular subject especially in a class you're enrolled into. And when you're not the seeker or discoverer of something you're looking for answers for, you know, maybe you are, but, but let's say you're just not, that's when it's harder because it's going to require more energy. And our brains are wired to spend only the energy it needs to. So when we're trying to learn something, we're told to learn, getting the motivation is going to be difficult. Which brings me to my second tip, which is to discover personal relevancy. And this is a term that I don't even know if it's a real term or whatever, but I, it's something I came up with, meaning that in anything you do, find meaning for yourself. So find a piece of that, something that you're working on, especially if it was already prescribed for you, that makes you curious. Dig deep to find a connection to another subject or a topic area. And if that doesn't work, think of, a, think of it like a high-level purpose. So let's say your, your passion is to be a medical professional. How would this topic subject improve my skills to do that? Instructors do have their own learning style, and this is what's comfortable for them, but this can be very unmotivating for students. But like Jake states, having a support structure, 
can really help students achieve greater motivations and motivation specifically towards their self-directed learning. One of the first things that they're prescribing learning, or at least trying to come up with what approach or a path that they think is best. And sometimes it's very difficult for the individual to make sense of that for one, and also to connect to personal relevancy. So I think with self-directed learning, one of the key aspect of it is that there's really two components. One is to have a strong support environment in place. So let's think outside of yourself. And then at the same time, you need to be a strong learner. So you're going to come in situations all the time throughout your life where you're going to be in those same situations, especially in the corporate environment or even in the medical space, you're going to be constantly told you need to keep learning and keep going and further your education and further your knowledge in certain areas. But you're going to have to constantly come back to why am I doing this? And if they're telling me this, take some of it and then maybe find something that's really curious to you and, and then move on beyond that. It's going to take more than just the lecture format, right? And I think it is stepping beyond. And again, I think the best learners, regardless of where you're at, still need a strong support structure in place, especially at the start. And I've read multiple studies that says a person that has strong self-regulation, which is another term for self-direction, is that they need more support up front when learning something new. So to get better, understand what it takes yourself as an individual and what it's going to take to support, have that support environment around you. The lecture is just one component, just one component. You also have reading. And yes, you may have assigned reading, but there's other readings that you can do out there. There's other things that you can watch, talk with other peers, right? There's other things around you. Take it all in. And so I think constantly scan to what makes you curious. Another thing is push yourself beyond your comfort zone. So never get comfortable. And I think in a lecture format, again, it might be very passive, but what can make you push yourself beyond that? How can I take components within that lecture and maybe apply it in some way, apply it in some context? Or could I have a conversation with somebody, even if it's just, I barely know the subject, but can I push myself to, to learn more about it by sharing it? So finding these personal relevance connections, these reasons why the material might be fun or interesting to you might be difficult at first. I frequently hear students stating, that this doesn't make sense, or I don't know how this is going to benefit me or my future patients, then it becomes more difficult to remember. So increased awareness of topics of personal relevance or hobbies or interests can really go a long way in motivating you when you're tackling the seemingly arbitrary information. And also don't forget to utilize your social networks. I can sit and take notes, read them again, and hope for the best on the test. But what if I pushed myself after each chapter or subject and told my friends about it? And you know, for me personally, most things I read are here. I go and explain it to my wife. You know, she has really, doesn't really care what I say, but it doesn't matter because what I'm doing is that I'm sharing it and I'm trying to get my thoughts out there. And even if it's not refined yet, I'm just testing it. So I'm using my network around me to help me further strengthen my knowledge on a particular topic. So, and frankly, that's, that's practicing. And implement the testing effect, aka rehearsal practice. Even if you don't know the material that well, try to explain it to a significant other or friend or family member. Actually, recently with the COVID outbreak, some members of the Medical Neminous Mastermind have been asking how to increase their motivation. And some have toddlers at home that make it difficult to study. So one suggestion I gave them was just to rehearse it to them maybe even in the form of a song. 
I mean, worst case is now you're recalling the information and finding gaps in your knowledge, and you're trying to make it kind of fun by making a song out of it, making it interesting, and interacting with your kid at the same time. And if nothing else, maybe it'll induce nap time. But it's also very difficult to feel motivated when you perpetually feel like you're falling behind. And one suggestion from Dr. Wendell Cole is to make sure that you're not procrastinating. We clicked record and, and just doing it, you know, now, you know, a lot of people love to wait and say, hey, we'll wait till we're, we're all done with, I'm done with residency or RK, I'll wait till I'm done with med school or I'll wait till this, you know, then I'll have more time to do things. And you know, it's always like a delaying game. It's procrastination, procrastinating, procrastinating, and you never get things done. So I've always just found a way to do things just by doing them now. In med school, you don't realize it in med school, but you have a lot more time than you, than you think, especially now being in residency and, and taking call and, and working a bunch. You realize like how much more time you had in med school when it didn't seem like that. And then when you're in med school, you realize how much more time you had in undergrad. So it's always, it's always like another level of things. I figured out the 80-20 rule, right? There's a, there's a rule that says kind of 80% of your productivity is done by 20% of your activities. So if you figure out those 20% of things that you're doing that's giving you 80% of the output, you can focus in on those 20% of things instead of doing this 100% and only being somewhat effective. You have to just keep moving bit by bit and you'll make progress. And remember, this is a long path. Healthcare medicine is a long path. And you can't hope for immediate gratification. We need to think in the long term and be ready for the long haul and plan for it, as Dr. Anders Eriksson mentions here. I know that some people have this wish that thinks it's going to be immediate and stuff like that. And that's something that we documented here in our laboratory studies. You know, these skills don't kind of just suddenly pop up out of nowhere. In fact, you if you design the training correctly, you kind of really see where you're at and also have maybe even a sense here of how far from where you want to go you are and make an estimate here of maybe how long you're going to have to sort of commit to training in order to get there. Pretty much even in high school, I refuse this idea for history exams of actually trying to cram and study dates and stuff like that. I ended up actually going to the library and reading maybe a book or two about the same period. So now I could kind of read and try to understand all the things that were going on. And then on the test, it was almost like I could retrieve all the necessary knowledge based here on my kind of understanding of the historical things. And and I think that's been a general principle of mine, knowing that I may have to spend 10 times as much time but if I try to understand why things are the way they are, I'm going to remember it much more easily. And it's also going to be much more easy for me to use that information later on, because once I understand it, it's something that I can now connect to other knowledge that I have. So for him, understanding the concepts was much more rewarding than trying to remember all these minuscule and separate facts. And this increased his intrinsic motivation to push forward. And he also sees the big picture. He's thinking about how to use this material practically later on, not simply what he needs to remember for the upcoming exam. What you really want to do is to help students become entrepreneurial. So they, in some ways, are developing the skills to be able to be good, not at basically just resuscitating the information that 
basically their teachers gave them. But in a sense here, developing individuals who are willing to think and basically also having kind of a goal where, you know, they can, you know, be motivated here to kind of improve their performance, seeing that, you know, not only will they feel good about doing well, but actually, as especially as a doctor, if, if you can do something for your patients that would in some ways make the outcomes better for them just because it's you, I think that would be extremely rewarding and, and sort of really motivate me if I was a doctor to invest here and really trying to be doing a little bit better every year. So maybe by increasing our awareness of the future benefits of this material, we can shape our connections to the material and increase our personal relevance now. But intrinsic motivators are not the only ones that we can use to push through our studies. Loretta Bruning from the Inner Mammal Institute explains some neurochemical reasons for the use of extrinsic rewards to help memory and motivation. So our brain evolved to learn from rewards and pain. So that sounds like old information, you know, 100 years ago, B.F. Skinner, but it's so empowering when you understand that your brain learns from rewards. If you get a cookie, then you learn whatever you did just before the cookie. This is an oversimplification because two things. One is with the larger human cortex, we can focus on abstract rewards rather than primal rewards. But the other is that our brain myelinates from early experience. So the rewards we wired ourselves to seek in youth are more powerful to our motivational system than conscious, intentional rewards that you seek today. So to use a grossly simplistic explanation, if you're going to study for an hour, break it down to 15-minute sections. If you're going to eat a cookie anyway, eat a quarter of the cookie after each of the 15-minute sections. So that's just a grossly oversimplified way of looking at it. If you can clarify before you start in your mind the abstract rewards that you expect to get, you're probably already doing that. It really helps to clarify the rewards you expect to get and give yourself a small reward of some sort or another because then you're always going to be anticipating that reward and that's stimulating your dopamine. But again, the abstraction that this knowledge is rewarding to you because of what? I want to learn this because when you want to learn something, that's the expectation of a reward and that stimulates dopamine. Intrinsic rewards, as we know, are better, but when you put marathon pressure on yourself, you're really extending those intrinsic rewards more than natural role. Let's think about how they evolved to work. Primates are not born hardwired with survival knowledge. They learn from life experience, from interacting with the world. And every chimpanzee learns to identify, it's suggested, like over two dozen different types of leaves by how rewarding is that particular item. Our sort of reward structure is very much affected by our early experience. So I would say it's very individual that each person can look to what motivates them from their early experience. But as you know, the reason you want to be a doctor, you know, that would be like a chimp saying, a year from now, I'm going to plant a seed because a year from now, it's going to grow into fruit. So they don't do that. 
We need some short-term rewards. If we totally deprive ourselves of short-term rewards, our body rebels. Do you know what your childhood rewards were? Maybe television or food or being able to go outside and have free playtime. How can you plan your rewards now and what do you want to get from them? Sometimes we need the short-term rewards in order to finally make it to our ultimate long-term plans. So let's break our study habits down into smaller chunks and focus on the difficult tasks first. So many people would think, oh, I'm going to start in the beginning and start again. But what they did is, no, you focus on the part you're having trouble with and you do it really slowly. So if you're having trouble with these 10 notes, just do the first three and keep doing those three until they're effortless because the effortless is neural connections, is myelinization, which happens better when you're young. And then add another three. So really small chunks with a lot of repetition. Feel bad like anything in your study practice that gives you a bad feeling, the one you did the worst in. Maybe your bad, your cortisol turns on with anything to do with that. The more you can address that bad feeling, it's just a circuit. It's a cortisol pathway and our brain evolved to protect us from having to touch a hot stove twice. So anything that was painful when you're young, you're really built a big neural pathway to say, whoa, I'm not going there again. And so when you constantly expect yourself to face that again, you're sort of undermining yourself with lots of cortisol. So your time is well spent addressing that, that threat feeling and replacing it with a new positive affirmation. Again, we hear about this negative pathway, which she calls a threat pathway. And by focusing on these difficult parts of our studies that activate this pathway, we can become somewhat desensitized to it. Besides the threat pathway, we also have to understand that failure is inevitable in medicine and in medical studies. It's a difficult profession, but it's also very rewarding. So how can we learn to embrace these failures so that we can keep up our motivations and persistence in the face of failure. I think it's very contextual. It also has a lot of cultural aspects to it. So there's a whole spectrum of cultures and contexts that accept failure to different degrees. So you have learning models in which failure is not acceptable at all. And then you have contexts in which students are exposed to experimentation, very minimal kind of test-taking and assessment. I was born and raised in Canada, and I never took an exam in primary school. There were no exams. For example, in Egypt, students take exams from grade one. So it depends on what kind of mindset you have towards assessment, which builds into students this idea that they need to get the right answer in order to succeed. Embracing failure is a little different. I personally encourage my students to stop at the moment in which they feel that they failed at something and to question and to ask themselves, you know, why this happened without judgment. And this is extremely difficult. It's not a natural process. Human beings are uncomfortable with failure and they're uncomfortable with ambiguity and they're uncomfortable with uncertainty. You have to train yourself and encourage students and often create experiences for them to experience failure in a safe space. So in a classroom where they can see other students failing at the same task and see how an instructor can coach them or facilitate the process so that they can succeed at what they previously failed at. A lot of programs now are including a blended form of learning in which students are not only learning 
you know, face-to-face in the classroom, but they're learning online and they're learning in communities online. They're learning from each other online, but they're also learning in a self-paced or a self-directed format, whether through MOOCs, so massive online open courses, or through online courses that are just part of what their program offers. The challenge here is motivation, of course. So not all students are motivated enough to complete self-directed or self-paced learning modules. The design of these self-paced modules is critical so that the motivation is built in to the assessments that's built into the engagement and the interactivity with the content because for self-paced modules, usually there may not be a learning community. You may be learning independently and motivation is a big challenge there. But if the content is rich enough and if the topic is selected in a way that the student feels the benefit of learning this outside the regular curriculum, I think students will do it. For example, there are a lot of open educational resources that students flock to in the tens of thousands, whether it's edX or Coursera or Udemy or you know Microsoft, IBM, all sorts of offerings, whether they're from educational institutions or from corporate entities or whatever. I personally have learned a lot from open educational self-paced modules, whether self-directed or in a community of learners. So I think motivation is very important. The topic that they want to learn about. There are certain topics that really are best taught in face-to-face environment, and there are topics that lend themselves to self-paced learning. Here at FreeMedEd, we have been activists for online teaching and MOOCs in medicine for years. But with the current coronavirus pandemic, schools are finally being forced to make this move into a more online and distance education-based system. Only time will tell how the institutes and the students will react to this shift, and if it will persist after this pandemic. But what students can do now is to understand how to adapt to these self-directed learning platforms best. We've now covered a lot about motivation, intrinsic, extrinsic, short-term planning, long-term planning, and how these affect our motivation, and how to reward ourselves to increase extrinsic motivation. But before we get on to our test-taking prep steps, especially those discussed in our MedEdge method, which we talk about in Read This Before Medical School, I want to again invite you to join us for our free medical nemonist meetups. We're going to be doing these hopefully bi-weekly or weekly, and you can get your free ticket by going to freemeded.org meetup. Also, mark in your calendar, set a reminder, set something to remind you a week or two beforehand too to update it, but the Online Medical Education Summit currently is being planned for this May 30th, which is a Saturday. So mark a reminder and we'll try to update you through this and through our social media links as well. But that's going to be our free medical summit, medical expo, where you can come and chat with great physician entrepreneurs, physician educators, and the top medical education companies in existence. More information will follow on the event page, which is freemeded.org slash O-M-E-S. Of course, if you have any questions, you can reach out to freemeded or the Medical Nemonist on just about every social media platform. You can also email us, medicalnemonist at gmail, with any questions or concerns you might have. All right, here are the thoughts from a few of our experts on question banks. The big thing when it comes to exams like step one or step two, I think that Obviously, all these things, memory techniques or, you know, space retrieval practice, all these are super helpful for that. But really, the, the primary thing that's going to that's gonna help you on, on those exams is going to be practice questions. 
I am a big proponent of questions. Uh, I think questions test your knowledge. I think questions let you know if you actually know the subject or not. And then sometimes I'm actually a proponent of doing questions before you read the material. Because a lot of people have issues. Of, oh, well, how do I study such information in, in this time? Like I just need to be in the library for 10 hours every night and have a set schedule, but not, but also not a set schedule because things happen. You never always stick to your schedule 100% of the time. Things are going to come up when you're in med school. Things are going to come up when you're, when you're in a residency. You never know what can happen. Things never always go as planned. Try to have some type of idea what you want to get accomplished. One way to implement the scheduling is with your exam schedule. Maybe before a quiz or before a standardized exam, what are you going to do for the day before, the week before, several months before? Plan everything out. But also, know that you might not hit every benchmark and that you'll have to adjust as time goes on. I know a problem I often had was overestimating the number of questions I could tackle within a set amount of time, and also underestimating how long it would take to properly review those topics after a practice test. We do have several charts and schedule examples and other things that you might find useful for free in our PDF workbook, which you can access by going to freemeded.org medstudent. However, even with the proper study plan, our flashcard decks, and some reputable QBank software, we might still find that our struggle continues, especially when we're discussing board exams. They are sometimes meant to test you in ways that have not really been tested before. This doesn't mean just difficult content, but working your cognitive abilities in more strenuous manners than they're used to. It's crazy to think that all doctors and med students have the same flat level of high, all the different subsets for cognitive constitution. But it's for that med student or doctor who feels like they're making too many unforced errors. They're missing too many questions they should not miss, not based on what they should know, but actually based on what they do know. I think one of the issues with the way the USMLEs, the complexes, the specialty boards have all evolved is this, this old idea that the higher the IQ, the higher the working memory. Testing issues start with working memory. So if the way these questions have evolved, I think there's a blind, unspoken, unintentional expectation that everybody sitting at the table taking, doing questions has a robust working memory. So to me, that's where you're, when you're reading questions, all that stuff is getting front-loaded into that working memory. And if your working memory is not as robust as everyone else's, you're going to be more likely to lose pieces of information. So what we want to do is limit, the, the, limit that grind limit that burden through process, through meticulous step-by-step processes when reading questions to limit cognitive burden so that you can hold on to the pieces of information better. Obviously, I find this very true from my past experiences. As someone with a poor memory, which led to the creation of this podcast, anything I could do to add a routine and to decrease my need to think during the test is very useful. I built in this step-by-step process to reduce cognitive load and stress during standardized exams and other stressful times. This is just one more step to help supplement my differences and difficulties on an exam compared to my better memory peers. But we also need to know how to self-analyze and self-assess to know where our problems are coming from. We don't know what percentage of people are making a significant number of test-taking misses as opposed to knowledge misses. Because that's one of the things we're teaching people in the class and in the workshop is you do your set of questions, however many you do, 
and then you're analyzing them after the fact and putting them into those two categories. Acknowledgement is acknowledgement. That's getting into, into knowledge consolidation, access, retrieval, application. That gets into that many class stuff, of which we can talk about memory palaces and whatnot. That, that's acknowledgement. That, that's all pre-test stuff. What we don't know is how many people are making these unforced errors, these test-taking mistakes, at what rate and how prevalent they are across the, across the table. And, and then how we can then, then what, what we can do to fix it. So I was listening to a Malcolm Gladwell podcast and he was talking about basketball and soccer and saying that basketball is a strong link system because the team with the best player is going to win the most game. And whereas soccer is a weak link system, like the team with the weakest player on the field is probably going to lose. What is test taking? Is test taking a strong link system or is it a weak link system? So Chase, in your experience, what would you say? So test-taking would be a weak link system. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because people talk, I I think we get validation when we behave erratically or inconsistently because, hey, I nailed that question. Hey, I nailed this question. But your score is not dictated by that. The score is like, it's not about how good you are, like when you're on your best behavior, executing, nailing questions here and there. That's not what determines success on boards. It's how bad you are. Like it's not where the ceiling is, how deep is the basement. How bad you are, how often you are bad, making these sort of unforced errors, these bad behaviors that are hurting you, you know? And so, yeah, test-taking is a weak link system. So that's where that's what the board's workshop addresses. It's not that any given topic is so hard. It's that there's so much, so fast, and I'm accountable for all of it, the speed, volume, density equation. I think those people, I think there are two, two types of minds. So this gets into the memory, mental constitution type stuff. I think you have your, your dual trackers, your two trackers. A two tracker can sit there and sit and lecture and they can receive the information. On track one, they can build the structure. They can put like the closet, they can build the shelves, they can put the labels on the shelves, the boxes on the labels on the shelves. And on the second track, they can start putting the items on the shelves where they belong. So they're building structure and starting to house details. And I think that translates even to what they, they read. If you're di- they're diving into a textbook, a review book, on one track, they're building structure. On another track, they're starting doing code details. I think a lot of StatMed learners are single trackers. They have one track. They can either build structure or start throwing details in the closet and sort it out later. And after the first test, when they get shellacked on details, they are going to make a decision, conscious or unconscious, and be like, I need details. So now this closet looks like they're scribbling, metaphorically scribbling details on on post-it notes and haphazardly slapping them all over the closet. The closet has a flickering light. There's like a leak over here in the corner, stuff's falling down. The stuff might be in the closet, but they don't know where it is. I think learning has to start from a study perspective. If it's not happening subconsciously, automatically, we have to consciously find, extract, and build superstructure first. We call that frameworking. This is a strategy that's taught in the class. You have to start with finding structure first. You can't take too long there. It's got to be external and explicit, not internal and implicit. And then all roads must lead to retrieval practice. I would rather direct the effort toward attempting recall at the, the hierarchical information going from the subcategorization back to the details. And yes, it's going to feel terrible because you're failing. I just studied this. I only remember 10%. This is terrible. That is the name of the game. Retrieval practice followed by what we call the self-check. You have to check the source. If you do the retrieval practice and don't self-check it, then it's a waste of your time. I talked about the three pieces leading to effort. The fourth piece, which I think is not emphasized enough in the literature, is organization and structure. I think that, and that's that, that single track versus the dual track. If you're a dual tracker, structure is, is found organically. 
But if you are not a dual tracker, if you're a single tracker, we need a skill to offset that. And that's where writing out the structure, deep structure, can have profound payoff if you retrieval, do engage in retrieval practice off of it. Again, he mentions, like our other guests, that this process might not feel very good, but it leads to better learning and retention. So we need to understand the framework of our learning in order to know how to best consolidate our knowledge. And we need to work on the processes for all of our study sessions and for on the exam day. And we need to work out the weakest links in order to see the greatest improvements. This very aware and purposeful design in our self-learning and analysis will help us diagnose our own areas of weakness and hone in on and deliberately and purposefully strengthen them to strengthen our overall abilities. There are so many more topics that we could go into regarding test-taking skills and abilities, and we teach a lot of soft skills, but also many hard skills through this podcast and through our book, Read This Before Medical School. For our complete MedEdge method training, consider purchasing our book to help keep the lights on. And of course, for one-on-ones, you can schedule a tutoring session. All this information, as always, is available through freemeded.org. I also have a few quick items to mention before we get to the key points of this episode. If you are lucky and listening to this near the release date, we are having another meetup on April 10th coming up in a few days, and the next one planned after that is probably going to be the 24th. All future dates and past episode archives should be available at freemeded.org meetups. Sometimes it might take me a few days to update everything, so check back regularly to see when the next one is. Or you can join our newsletter and get updates regularly there. And I want to point out that this entire recap series, and most of the show in general, really focuses on the first two stages of Bloom's taxonomy. If you haven't seen that chart before, you can pull it up on Google. We focus on knowing or remembering and on putting those bits of knowledge together into comprehension. There are many more levels to the taxonomy, and you will need these in order to be a competent physician. However, these are the fundamental steps that you need to build off of for each student to begin progressing. Master your knowledge and your memory as best you can first. Then take advantage of the stages of application and analysis and synthesis. And again, a key point that I want to echo from our earlier episodes is regarding to the need for greater clinical experiences for the next generation of students, especially in the current pandemic that we're facing. This first bit from Dr. David Lawson of Medical School 2.0. Instead of all the travels, I wish I spent a little bit of that free time shadowing people doing what I wanted to do. So I can really get a clear picture of a perfect day 10 years in the future and then reverse engineer how I would arrive there. And also from Dr. Hoda Mostafa. Also things like apprenticeship. These are safe spaces. I mean, in surgical training, in medical training, internships and fellowships are spaces in which there's a very minimal margin for failure, but at the same time, you are learning things with the apprenticeship model, with the mentorship of someone more experienced than yourself, which gives you the safety in which if you are going to fail, there will be someone there to assist you in correcting this failure very quickly. These views really coincide with our past discussions about mentorship, the need for more mentorship and how to achieve it. And though we're specifically talking about clinical mentorship in these instances, we need it in all areas of medical education. Don't forget to go to find a rotation 
on social media in order to follow our sister organization as it grows and develops in this clinical education field. And one last teaser before we get to the key takeaways. Here's a last minute tip from Brad Zup to finish up our interviews and end off this episode. My thought process is I always have time for what I do first. So what's the most important thing to accomplish? I mean, within reason, I mean, you got to get up, got to have breakfast, but a lot of times I'll go for a run or a lot of times, you know, there's that email I've got to respond to. And that's the first thing. That's the important thing. That's what I'll do first. Or, you know, a student might go, okay, well, what can I do to work on my work? A lot of people just work in their jobs or, or their studies. Some people work on their jobs or their studies and then work in their jobs. And that's what I recommend is take whatever that is, how much you can spare is it 15 minutes over breakfast to work on what you're going to work in. All right, and now our key takeaways. First, I want you to understand that study groups are difficult, but a good study buddy can really make a huge difference in your study success. They can also act as that social support network that has been discussed in past episodes to help improve your motivation, especially during trying times. Another is that we can also improve our study motivation through a mixture of both intrinsic and extrinsic rewards. By finding personal relevance, ways to relate to the material, and breaking everything down into smaller chunks, we can really strive forward and persist. Also, understanding exam-specific tools, cue banks, and methods can decrease our cognitive load and better prepare you for test day. Just as our undergrad study habits may not have worked so well in grad school, your normal day-to-day study methods and materials might not work as well for standardized exams. Find the right materials that are for you make a plan, use a process, whether it be the MedEdge method or something similar that'll decrease your cognitive load and smash your exams. So I hope you've enjoyed this seven-part recap. It's been a lot of fun to make, very, very trying, but very, very useful and valuable both for me and I hope for you. Stay tuned for more great content to come on flashcard techniques, exam prep, memory skills, and much more. And remember, Stay away from social comparisons. It'll do nothing but drive you nuts, and everyone else's failures and successes have no relation to yours. Just focus on your studies, compete with yourself, and better yourself. Study smarter, be well, and show your grit. You got this. 